Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we discuss conflict resolution and development in the Northeast Indian state of Nagaland. Nagaland is a mountainous state in northeastern India that has seen decades of insurgency and conflict. The dispute between the Naga people, a group of several indigenous tribes in India's northeast, and the government of India began with the creation of the Indian Republic in 1947. The Naga people had been allowed to govern themselves during British rule and sought to remain independent of the new India. To reassert control over the region, the Indian army was sent in during the mid-1950s, sparking a long-running conflict. While an agreement was reached in 1960 with some segments of the Naga that led to the creation of the state of Nagaland in 1963, violence has continued to plague the region. Today, Nagaland remains undeveloped because the violence creates insecurity that has limited economic growth and social advancement. However, a ceasefire, first negotiated in 1997, has limited annual civilian casualties in the past five years. Following several ups and downs in the peace process and negotiations between the government of India and the Naga rebels, a breakthrough emerged in 2015 when Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced a framework agreement for peace. A final agreement remains to be signed, but the prospect of peace has created new opportunities for economic development, growth, and connectivity in the state of Nagaland. Elections earlier this year in March also seemed to reinforce the new local political alignment with Delhi, as local Naga parties joined a coalition with the national ruling party, the BJP. Joining us to discuss the state of play in Nagaland is Mr. Abu Mehta, a journalist and political organizer who serves as the General Secretary of the National Democratic Progressive Party in Nagaland. Mr. Mehta previously served as a senior communications advisor to the chief minister of the state of Nagaland. Mr. Mehta recently sat down with my colleague, Aman Thacker, research associate with the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at CSIS. I'll turn it over to Aman now. Welcome to Kajit Asia. My name is Aman Thacker, and I'm a research associate with the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at CSIS. One of our goals here at the Wadwani Chair is to shine a light on the crucial role that India's 36 states and union territories play in shaping governance throughout the world's largest democracy. Today, we get to discuss one of India's most unique states, Nagaland, and joining me on the show is Mr. Abu Mehta, a leader in media and politics in the state. He has served as press secretary to the chief minister of Nagaland and is currently secretary general of the Nagaland's National Democratic Progressive Party. He is also founding editor of the Eastern Mirror of Nagaland. Mr. Mehta, welcome to Kajit Asia. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here. I want to start by looking at a key issue for those of us looking on the outside in. In August of 2015, Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that the government of India had successfully negotiated a framework for a peace agreement with the Nationalist Socialist Council of Nagaland. However, reports since have indicated that there are differences over territory outside Nagaland claimed by the Nagaland people. What can you tell us about the progress or lack thereof that you have seen in the peace agreement from where you sit? You see, uh, the present peace process between the Naga political groups and the government of India is more than 20 years old in the sense that ceasefire was signed 20 years ago and the negotiations are still going on. But if you look at the Naga political movement, it is more than 80 years old. It is pre-India's independence. So in that sense, when the framework agreement was signed in 2015, there was a lot of hope, there was a lot of excitement. And also it was a new administration in Delhi with Modi government coming in. And we thought he was going to make new ground. He did, because he appointed a negotiator who had more mandate, who had more political clout. So there was a lot of expectation on the ground, and people thought, finally, we will see daylight in a political solution. 
Unfortunately, after the signing of the framework agreement, not much headway has been made. And as you rightly pointed out, the new challenges that has come, actually they're not new. It's seen as new because of new media attention to it. Otherwise, these are challenges that has always existed on territory, on unity. But, you know, uh, I personally feel that if the government in Delhi has the will, they can pull this deal through. And most of the challenges and most of the differences have more or less been, you know, ironed out. And the main problem is the issue of territory, territorial integrity of Naga inhabited areas. It is a legitimate demand. Nagas are not demanding anything that is not ours. And this has always been part of the talk. So we are confident that a breakthrough can come. But again, with the political scenario in the country and uh, national elections coming forward, there's a lot of apprehension. But as I said earlier, in the ground situation, there is definitely hope that a solution is near. And how long do you think the negotiations will continue before a final settlement is reached? The negotiations have been going on for 20 years. And every time somebody takes a mic and speaks officially, they always say that we will see a solution soon. And we feel 20 years is long enough time. You know, it's also a political uh, conflict that has lasted very long. We call the Naga insurgency as the mother of all insurgencies in Northeast India, if not in Southeast Asia also. One of the longest uh, insurgencies that has uh, been going on. So in that sense, time is required to break new ground, to have confidence-building measures. But 20 years is now good enough, and we feel that both sides have understood each other. It's now up to the negotiating parties, especially the government of India, to expedite the talks and reach a solution. As we've been talking about, the insurgency obviously has limited economic development and growth in the region. Would you be comfortable talking about the history of the conflict and especially your experiences uh, with the insurgency and, and how that's played out over your lifetime in Nagaland? You see, uh, we are a conflict zone. As I said earlier, the mother of all insurgencies of the northeastern part of the country. I myself did not uh, directly experience the direct impacts of insurgency and conflict in the sense that my daily life was impacted. It was, but not to the extent that my parents' generation went through. You know, I, at least I grew up listening to stories of you know, the negatives of uh, conflict, human rights abuses, rape, and you know, uh, torture, and suppression, and you know, populations being made to suffer because of insurgency. But at that point of time, we all know that the presence of media, the situation was different. The outside world did not come to know. But today, the situation is, of course, very different. What I'm trying to stress on is that you have a generation which grew up under those circumstances. Situation has changed. Delhi has also realized. And we are happy that Delhi has understood that a con that conflict has to be brought to an end in a democratic manner. That is why Delhi is also having ceasefire and having political negotiations. That means they have understood and they have also acknowledged and recognized the Naga political movement. Prime Minister of India in 2003, when he came to Kohima, he said India recognizes and acknowledges the unique history of the Naga people. I think that is significant. And it, for a young man uh, in that uh, stadium that day listening to the Prime Minister, I was so happy. And, you know, we were happy that India, the Prime Minister of India said that. And that is why we, we have confidence in this peace process. We have confidence in peace process in the sense that India is coming forward with that attitude. That was not the case perhaps earlier. So we're looking forward to it. So as we think more broadly about the future of India and, and the future of Nagaland especially, one of the critical challenges is development. 
You have focused on infrastructure development and regional connectivity in your roles as Secretary General of the uh, Nationalist Democratic Progressive Party and as a member of the think tank uh, Youth Leaders Connect. How has the insurgency affected infrastructure development in your state, and how do you see the future of infrastructure progressing after the successful conclusion of the peace process? Oh, definitely. You see, overall development in all sectors has been negatively impacted because of the political situation. Insurgency and, you know, this uh, conflict that is taking place has impacted infrastructure in a big way. In fact, if you, Nagaland is the 16th state of the Indian Union. Nagaland was formed in the early 60s. But if you go to that state, it is still very much backward to the rest of the country. Infrastructure is poor, connectivity is poor. And, you know, there is very uh, less presence of human resource development institutions. We feel that one of the reasons is this political conflict. There is a lack of confidence between Delhi and Kohima, obviously. We feel that once the peace process is true and there's a solution, there'll be a, it'll, you know, uh, a new dawn, a new era of development will take place. And we are looking at infrastructure development not in one area, but across all areas. And our youth, our people, our citizens haven't gotten the opportunity as their counterparts in the rest of the country because of these challenges. They are unable to reach out towards their aspirations. They are unable to reach out towards their dreams. They have been hurdled, they have been challenged. And you know, there is a lot of uh, catching up to do. And we need a peaceful solution. India is the greatest democratic country in the world. And we are confident that India will uphold its democratic principles and it will bring a solution you know, in a democratic manner. And you know, reflect the aspirations of the people. This is what we want. And this is what we have confidence upon Delhi. You know, politics and, and government is, is another topic that I wanted to hit upon. It's following the uh, 2018 Legislative Assembly elections in Nagaland, the NDPP entered into a post-poll alliance with the BJP and its National Democratic Alliance. That alliance had previously partnered with the Naga People's Front, uh, which is now in the opposition. So what is your sense of the party's rationale behind this new alliance with the BJP and, and its NDA? Actually, uh, let me correct you a little bit there. You see, uh, the BJP had an alliance and a government in place prior to the 2018 elections. Mm -hmm. But on the eve of the elections, BJP broke that alliance with the NPF and aligned with our party, the NDPP. The NDPP at that point of time was just three months old. We were not even recognized by the Election Commission of India. But we projected a change. We projected confident leadership to the people. And we appreciated the BJP. The BJP realized that the pulse of the people is with this party, the NDPP. And we had a pre-poll alliance. And we had a seat-sharing formula for the first time in the state of Nagaland in more than 50 years. There have been alliances in the past, coalitions in the past, but there hasn't been seat-sharing formula in assembly elections. So we had a seat sharing formula where we contested in all 60 states. NDPP fought in 40, sta 40 seats, BJP fought in 20 seats, and together we fought, uh, fought in 60 uh, constituencies. We won 30, and we, we came to power. So it is a pre-poll alliance. We have the support of the Delhi government, Prime Minister Modi. He himself came and campaigned in the state and declared that who would be the chief ministerial candidate. I think that convinced the people that there would be stability in this alliance and there's confidence in this alliance. That's the reason why we, I think we pulled through, despite being an absolutely new party. You know, that was a challenge. We pulled through, we won 30 seats. And today, Kohima has a stable government uh, with a you know, positive support from Delhi. So this, uh, this government that's now in power, uh, it's been in power since March of 2018. What are the priorities of this government, and are there any crucial ideas, reforms, or programs that we can expect the government to implement during its time in office? 
See, we belong to a situation where reforms is not a big issue. The challenge is good governance, improving the system of delivery, reaching administration to the doorsteps, and ensuring, the far, ensuring that the far-flung areas get development. And when you talk about development, of course, the first uh, requirement is infrastructure development. But then infrastructure development in the sense that first we need good roads. Nagaland is a landlocked state. We don't have access to waterways. We have just one airport and about 8 to 10 kilometers of rail line. So what's the main challenge? Road connectivity. So we need to improve connectivity to give a boost to the economy, to create employment, opportunities for investment, and we need to create avenues where manufacturing can take place. Employment can be generated. We are looking at, you know, we call it the sunrise sector. Because right now, our strength is tourism. We want to promote the state uh, in the field of tourism, ecotourism, tribal tourism, rural tourism, adventure tourism. You know, there's many opportunities for the, the tourism network to be expanded. And we are also getting support from Delhi. That's one key area where we are looking at. We are also looking at uh, investment in infrastructure connected with human resource development. We don't have uh, institutions of higher education, like medical colleges, uh, engineering colleges. We need to set these up so that we improve and increase the capacity of our youth. And uh, we have a strong uh, population of youth, which is very vibrant, and we need to tap into that uh, potential so that we create employment, give a boost to the economy, and you know, take the state forward. Thank you, Mr. Abu Mehta, and thank you for listening to Culture Asia. That's our show. Very special thanks to Mr. Abu Mehta for sharing his insights and personal experiences from Nagaland. To learn more, you can find links in the show notes to the speech by Prime Minister Modi after the announcement of the Framework Agreement for Peace in Nagaland and an in-depth analysis and history of Nagaland and India's Northeast by the South Asia Forum for Human Rights and Heinrich Boll Foundation, as well as the Institute for Defense Studies and Analyses. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemalangsari. This podcast was written by Jeffrey Bean and Amon Thacker and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or email at csis.org. Check out our Reconnecting Asia site to see a new study by John Hillman of China's Belt and Road Initiative that includes statistical analysis of 173 infrastructure projects. Also, be sure to listen to our podcast series, China Power with Bonnie Glazer, for interviews and analysis on all things related to China's rise. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.